Our scripture this morning is from Luke 16. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Thanks, Mel. Uh, we are in a summer series on reading between the lines. My name is Graham. I'm on staff here at Elevation, if I haven't met you yet. And uh, we've been looking at stories, um, particularly characters, of, of people who we often don't focus on in the Bible, um, to try to see sort of the, the, what the good news is with these stories that we don't often encounter. And this one is not a person, but I thought it was worth doing. This is the parable often called of the unjust steward. And as you've just listened to, it's real weird uh, and really confusing about what Jesus is advocating for here, what he uh, wants us to do, and maybe what the message is from this. So I thought it was kind of in the vein of what we're doing this summer for still the next couple weeks. And uh, so we're going to dive into it together. Uh, and so, yeah, it's a fictitious parable, um, but it sort of 
challenging in the way it doesn't seem to line up with a lot of what we maybe think of Jesus being about. So it's, it's one that we hide and neglect, and a lot of people would actually say it's maybe one of the more challenging parts of the whole New Testament. So this morning, we're going to try to figure out what this means. And so I'm, I'm going to do a few different things. We're going to look at, there's not a lot of consensus about, about what we're supposed to do with this one. Um, we're going to get a little bit nerdy into like biblical scholarship, if you'll bear with me. And then we're going to look at a few different ways that people have tried to wrestle through this story. And then I'm going to hopefully leave us with some good news that we can take home with us as well. And so as I said, this is a parable. These are stories, right? This is kind of an art piece that Jesus came up with. Art can reach us in a way that words cannot, Right? It describes situations and parts of the human experience that just kind of plain factual language often can't get at. It's why we love music. It's why we love movies. It's how Jesus taught, right? Some of us find this really frustrating. Jesus would be asked a straightforward question, and instead of just saying yes or no, he would tell a story, which would get at these underlying principles and really get at truth in a way that just giving a straight-up answer wasn't able to do for people. And that could be really frustrating. They're often without an explanation of what they meant, and they're still some of the more captivating parts of the Bible, right? These parables that Jesus taught. So just to refresh us, I'm going to read the parable again. My version is a little bit different than the one Mel read, so the units that they talk about are just changed. The same way we could measure something in, in meters or centimeters or things, it's sort of the same, but different measurements that we can use. So there was a rich man who had a manager. Charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Give me an account of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, what will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm too ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? He answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil, and he said to them, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 50. Then he asked another, how much do you owe? And he replied, a hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Now this is where things start to get a little bit confusing. Is this the end of the parable, or does it keep going? Where does the actual story end, and where do we get into an explanation of what's going on here? And so this is where we're going to get a little bit nerdy with how the Bible works and how we kind of work this out as the people of God, right? This was uh, an oral culture at the time. Most people didn't know how to read, and so we don't have any video cameras that were there for any of these stories kind of dictating exactly what was happening. Um, so this was kind of oral words passed down from person to person. And so there's a few different ways that people see this working. And I think just to help visualize it, um, I'm going to actually just ask for a couple volunteers. You don't have to say anything, but I'm just going to get you to come up and stand here to help me um, explain how this is working. So I have one, and then I knew this rest would happen. Yeah, Tim, come on up. I need, so I need four people total. I got two. I just need two more people to come up and stand here. Yeah, well, one last person. Come on up, Trinity. Okay, Nadine, you can stand right here and face me. And Tim, can you come sit on the stage and pretend that you're writing something down? Okay, Alyssa, can you maybe just stand back on the top stage? And Trinity, you're going to hang out right here and just like, look like uh, Nadine is just telling you the greatest thing in the world. Okay, so let's imagine we're in Bible times, right? We're gonna, Nadine is an important speaker. We're going to call her, we'll call her Jesus, okay? So this important speaker is saying something, and there are like loyal followers 
of Jesus who are traveling around, listening to everything that's being said. There's other people, other loyal followers, who are doing their best to write things down as they hear it. You know, for the sake of the story, we'll call him Matthew. All right? And then we've got other people who weren't there, right? As far as we know, they weren't around during any of this, but they're also trying to write down stories and kind of capture what happened with Jesus. They realize, oh, he's died. We've got to pass this message on. We've got to write all this down for future people like us to be able to interact with. So we'll call you Luke. Okay, so Luke wasn't there. And so Luke has got to do their best to take things that we've heard from other people writing, like Matthew, and maybe people like Trinity over here who are there and can remember what Jesus was saying. Luke, as far as we know, did not have a chance to interview Jesus 101 or get a video recording of all the TED Talk-esque you know, teachings. So there's a few different things going on, and, and a part of this wing of biblical scholarship is like, okay, how did this all come together? How did we piece together what Jesus said? Let's give these guys a hand. Thank you so much. You can sit down. And so this, this is pretty, this is a big question that people have about this passage, is who said what? If we go to the next slide, there's a pretty much full consensus amongst scholars that Jesus said verse 1 all the way to like 8a, right? The parable portion, Jesus said, but then begin fighting about what happens next, right? Some people would say, well, this has got to be Luke or somebody that Luke was interacting with, this blue part, right, explaining the parable. This has got to be someone else because it seems like they're offering a justification because they find the parable uncomfortable just as much as we do. It doesn't make sense. So they're trying to come up with an explanation. But then these purple parts, we've also got these random phrases from Matthew that we get in the Sermon on the Mount that are showing up here again. So is Luke taking stuff Jesus said? Is he taking something that someone else said? Is he taking parts that Matthew said and putting them all together in sort of this teaching part? What's going on? And there's lots of different ways of seeing this. Um, and that's, okay, so there's our, our nerdy biblical scholarship for a sec. One way to see this is that Jesus said it all. Or certainly that Luke, when writing this, said, uh, wanted us to read it this way, right? The final form that we have uh, is this way, and this is how we can kind of take it. And I, I don't mean this to be a challenge to our faith. I don't think it needs to. Like, I don't, I don't think when we, when we parse apart some stuff like this that it has to be a challenge to the whole Scripture being God-breathed, right? Luke, um, I believe, was divinely inspired to present us this uh, story of Jesus, and we can read it and look for truth in it in the final form we have. But it is a challenging part of the Bible as far as where does the parable end and where does this other teaching begin, right? I think you know, I, I would still be willing to claim the title of evangelical Christian, despite what some of my brothers and sisters to the South are doing with that term. Um, and so I do believe that all Scripture is God-breathed, and that we need to wrestle with it in its final form as we have it, and that we need to trust that God's had 2,000 years of my time to work out the kinks if he didn't want me wrestling with this Bible. And uh, it's a Bible that I am content to build a relationship with. It certainly does embarrass me sometimes, and there's a lot of parts that I find frustrating and confusing about it, but I think that's a lot healthier, uh, and I can happily deal with that, right? I, I would rather a Bible that I struggle and wrestle through for my whole life than a Bible that just kind of agrees with everything that I think all the time, because that's really how a family relationship works, right? It's sometimes embarrassing, sometimes frustrating, but my goodness, we're committed to, to wrestling with it. And I think we can all actually take a lot of comfort in this fact. Um, no one's disagreeing that this parable about a manager who is praised for acting shrewdly was Jesus. Uh, and that, to me, is good apologetics. Like, if I was trying to doctor up a fake religion, 
if I was like an early follower of Jesus and he had died and I was trying to push this agenda of like, we're going to try to, you know, spread this message to the world, I wouldn't make up a story where he's totally out of line with his character, right? This story isn't consistent with Jesus' character, right? But it's in there. And people all agree that he said it. And so if I was trying to fake this religion or present this Jesus person as the ideal, I wouldn't put that in there. I wouldn't put this in there if it wasn't true. Because it doesn't really help make the case for him being this amazing person because it seems inconsistent and that's why we're all still wrestling with it. So no one is kind of questioning whether this is Jesus or not and I think that's a good thing. That's a really actually great kind of testament to our faith being real that people are all wrestling with actually what he said and trying to figure out how to live this life together. So assuming that Jesus did say all this and assuming that God is very okay with this passage in Luke that we have before us, what did he intend with this? What do we do with it? How do we interpret it? Is Jesus saying we should be dishonest? Why is this steward getting praised? So there's a few different explanations that we can look at. I want to share a few of the major ideas that people have kind of had about why um, this story is here and what we do with this explanation. And it has a lot to do with defining what words mean, right? You can have a word, and people can have very different contexts for what that word means. Uh, this, can still, this happens a lot in the Bible where we have to learn what their context for the words are that we see because it's a culture removed from ours. And this can happen in our own lives too, right? Like we can have a definition of a word and somebody else can have the same word but a very different definition. Like a really good example of this in uh, maybe your life, but certainly in mine, is the word vacation, right? It's a word. We all have a definition of it, but we can all have a very different notion of what vacation is. So take my life, for example, right? My idea of a vacation is this. I did not take this picture, but this is beautiful Algonquin Park, right? And so my idea of a vacation is to go on a canoe trip. I like paddling through lakes. I like pumping water out of those lakes and like feeling like I'm living off the land. I like using my muscles, right? I have a pretty sedentary lifestyle. And so for like a week, once a year to just get out and put a canoe on my shoulders and just like see what I can do to physically exert myself is like the greatest thing, right? It's a total vacation. Um, my wife, Rachel, uh, who I would uh, define as like just on the spectrum of a group of people I like to affectionately call indoorsy, uh, would have a different kind of definition of the word vacation right? For her, vacation is as little output as possible. It's the opposite of survival, right? We're not going to pump water from an unknown lake just so that we can survive. You're going to drink wine on a beach because you can, right? You're not going to nap because you're exhausted from carrying a canoe on your shoulders. You're going to nap because there's nothing better to do in a hot afternoon. Nothing needs to be done. And so we have two different definitions of what a vacation is, and then we got married. And uh, we went on a canoe trip a few weeks ago. And it was awesome. It was really buggy during the portages. We had to like move our canoe over beaver dams and get like our knees stuck up to uh, our weight, like up to our knees in mud. Uh, there was no refrigerated food. We were pumping water just so we could survive, and it was great. And Rachel is great. I'm not like I don't want to sell her short with the indoorsy comment, right? Because uh, she's a good paddler, and she is always the first one out of the canoe to paddle over. But it certainly was not her definition of vacation. The, the moment that I liked the best from our canoe trip was when we were paddling in uh, at the end of our trip. We'd been out for four days. We got up early. We'd done a two-and-a-half-kilometer portage that day, and we were paddling in. The, la like the entrance point was in sight. We could see the vehicle, and we passed another couple. 
and they were about our age, and they were canoeing out on the start of their trip. And the guy was in the back, kind of like me, and he had his paddle out, and he had his map out, and he was ready to go. And his partner was in the front, and she didn't have a paddle. She was just sitting there. She had a bag of chips, and she was just, just looking around. And we passed them, and Rachel just turned back to me and said, why don't you let me do that? <laughs> to which I replied, keep paddling. <laughs> the vacation did end with a trip to a family cottage where uh, there was a lot of slow-cooked barbecue and sitting and reading and napping and all that good fun. So it was redeemable. But it's important, right? We have two very different ideas of what constitutes a vacation. And understanding each other's notion of what a vacation is is going to be important for our marriage to survive <laughs> over the rest of our life. So when we define terms like this, right, we need to know the backstory, and uh, we need to be able to define what's going on with this steward. So there's a few different explanations, and the first one has to do with um, interest and how their economy worked at the time. So there was a notion of what's called usury, right, unlawful interest being charged on transactions. So there's a lot of parts of the Old Testament, a lot of like kind of verses that say that people, um, the Hebrews to one another, are not allowed to charge interest to each other, right? We talk about God kind of having, the, the biblical vision for living is bigger than just kind of moral, personal behavior, right? It's this bigger desire of how a whole society should function. And so one of those things is how an economy should function. In the Old Testament, there's lots of things saying we shouldn't charge interest, right? Let's not build a scarcity system into our economy here. Let's not charge interest. But we love charging interest. All of us do. I, it's nice to have a guarantee when you give someone something that if they don't give it back, at least, you know, there's some sort of insurance there. We like making a bit off of our investments. That's how we all hope to retire someday. And so there's a lot of ways that people tried to get around this law so that they could charge interest to each other. You would often write into a loan some interest, but spite, despite not giving it to the person, right? And they would have someone in their household manage this for them. So an example would be if one of you came to me and said, Graham, you know what? It's the start of the school year. I realize there's a couple extra textbooks that I got to buy that I didn't budget for. Can you lend me $100? And I will pay you back as soon as I, you know, get paid next, uh, just so I can get this, this textbook and stay on track with my courses. And I might say, sure. Right? I'll say, yeah, of course. I get that. I've got 100 bucks. You know, why don't I give you $120? Because I know you could probably use it. I'll give you $120. And let's just write up a little contract just so it's kind of all fair. And so we have either, you know, our message history or we write up a little thing that says, I'm going to lend you $120 and you're going to pay me back by such and such a date. And then I give you the envelope with the money in it, but inside is only $100. So we've got a contract written up for $120. It doesn't say anything about interest. But all I've given you is $100. So there's sort of this implied interest going on. And so some people think that's a lot of what happened in the time of Jesus and what is happening here, right? This steward was the one sort of designated to do these, this usury and this unjust financial behavior to try to get um, extra money for the employer. His title may have actually been a steward of injustice, right? Like that might have been a job title, the same way we have like a minister of justice or something. It doesn't necessarily mean the person is unjust or it's just sort of the title of their job, the minister of injustice. And the loans were awful back then, right? We can see, like, it looks like interest was, like, 50, you know, 100%, right? If it was, I have 100 bottles, 50 is all that it was really required. And the steward, this is maybe how he made his money, too, is by, by getting these interest payments, and he would just take from what was happening here. And so in this story, when he's calling people in to remove their debts, what some people think is he's actually just doing the loans fairly. He's actually taking off that percent 
that would have been interest, that would have just been an extra kind of like usury charge. And he's just doing the flat out fair equivalent of what they had actually borrowed in the first place. And so he's praised for sort of, you know, giving up of his own money in order to even out the score of what's happening. That's one explanation for what's going on. Another one is to see it from like a story perspective, right? Jesus made up this story. It's a parable. And so one way to look at it is that he is sort of a character. Um, the idea of like a rogue character, you know? This person who is sort of on the wrong side of society, but they're also really lovable, right? They're kind of a counter to an overly serious view of life. My favorite modern equivalent of this sort of character archetype is Captain Jack Sparrow, right? We've got this sort of, he's a pirate. He is on the wrong side of the law, but he is quite lovable. And, you know, he is sort of a model um, of kind of, he's a counter to this overly serious view of life we see portrayed in, like, the lives of these British soldiers and what's going on, right? It's a great movie if you haven't seen it. You know, one commentator says that the steward is a model for those who must accept the full human dilemma of surviving amid ambiguous situations and not collapsing when faced with destruction, right? Life is hard. This guy is in a tough spot, and he is making the best of what he's got, in a similar way that we see with Captain Jack Sparrow. Any of you who have not seen Pirates of the Caribbean 1, I would, you have a standing invite to my house to watch it whenever you want, because it is just the greatest movie ever. Um, some people think, right, like this guy is kind of, he's comic relief. Jesus has been teaching for a really long time. It's serious stuff. And maybe this is just like a character thrown in there to kind of ease the tension of a presentation. I just threw out a little hopefully silly story about our vacation that's supposed to like, you know, help with the flow of this sermon as we get into serious things. And maybe Jesus is just kind of doing the same thing in his teaching format with this story. And another one, a big explanation that people have worked through is that the steward is actually overcoming injustice that has been put on him. Right? He, maybe this master is actually unjust. Maybe this master is, you know, he's, he's been unjust. He's going to destroy him financially by putting him in a hard place, right? He's maybe hired him to do these shady dealings. And uh, the steward is now trying to figure out what to do now that he can't do that anymore. Some people think the steward might have actually just been a slave too, right? The slavery was practiced and he would have had a lot of autonomy. He might have just been a high-level slave that was appointed over his house. And so if he's dismissed, what is he going to do? And so he, in this explanation, he actually just removes a huge portion of people's debts. And what this would have done is it would have um, built up a lot of goodwill for the master, right? If I, if I came in and, and just, like, if I was, you know, working for a mortgage broker and I just... Um, knew I was going to get fired and just started like reducing people's mortgage amounts. People would love that company. They'd be like, wow, this is the most amazing company in the world. Everyone should come have a mortgage here because they're willing to reduce our amounts. And for them to double back and say, actually, that was a mistake. We're going to charge you as much as we were in the first place. People would get pretty upset. In the same way, this happens here, right? People would have been overjoyed. They would have thought, wow, this guy's acting on behalf of his master. His master is a generous person who is like bestowing good things on us. This is amazing. So the master really doesn't have like any sort of social leeway to actually come back at the people and say, no, sorry, that was a mistake. Because then he'll really be hated by the community. And these are far tighter knit communities than we would have today, right? They're doing business with the people in their vicinity. They don't have transactions across computers or anything the way we do where it's kind of removed. This is the people he does life with who are maybe indebted to him for different reasons. So that's another explanation, right? To see this Robin Hood type figure helping the people out against an unjust master, against the kind of the powers that he encounters. And so there's all these explanations and then the master just kind of praises him Right? We don't know if he was fired or if he got his old job back. The story kind of ends and we don't know what happens to him. But he is praised 
And any one of these kind of three options for what's going on still makes the story pretty weird. And actually, that is the point that I want us to sit with today, that this is weird and uncomfortable. As one commentator writes, he says, the most fundamental message of Jesus' parables is that things are not as they seem. You must be open to having your tidy vision of reality shattered. By their paradoxical qualities, the parables become metaphors of the transcendent. Only when one stands before the limits of language is one able to accept the advent of God's kingdom as a gift. I want us to sit in this. The fact that it is unsettling, that's what I want us to sit in. 2,000 years later, with a culture and a half removed, this story still doesn't seem like it makes up and makes sense and adds up. And this parable in Luke, if you have your Bibles with you, is part of a broader section that's teaching on money and economics, right? It's this broader, long teaching Jesus is doing that's an exercise in rethinking about power and justice and money. The story before this is the story of the prodigal son, which is a well-known story of a son who goes off, squanders his father's money. He has a plan for how to come home, and his father embraces him like nothing wrong happened. And the story is then followed, so the prodigal son happens, then this story about this unjust steward, and then the story that follows it is the story about a rich, powerful man who doesn't ever look at this beggar named Lazarus who needs help. And when they die, there's this incredible twist of fate where Lazarus is is beside Abraham, and the rich man is the one in peril. And their kind of roles have been reversed from what they were doing on earth. And so it's in this line of like economics, right? We've got this prodigal son who's forgiven. We've got this unjust steward who is praised. And then we've got this role reversal of a, of a just man, or sorry, of a rich man and a poor man. And their roles reversing in the next life. Right? And these stories all are weird and we should sit with them and struggle. Right? When a, when a kid takes half of the net worth of his father, when the youngest son takes half his father's net worth, and goes off to concerts and sports games and Instagram-worthy vacations and spends it all on pornography and then comes home, the father's probably not, you know, he doesn't just pay for his university tuition. That doesn't make sense, right? Masters don't commend their shrewd employees who steal money from the company after they've been fired. Right? Isn't wealth supposed to be a sign of God's blessing? Doesn't that mean I've, I've found favor with God? Why would it mean ultimate destruction? Why would a God humble himself and become a slave and allow himself to be killed by human beings so that he could write a long relationship with people so that God and his people could have a relationship again through no fault of that God's own way. Why would he do that? That's not fair. It doesn't make sense. What is happening? These parables are all meant to kind of disorient us to the roles of power, justice, and money in this new kingdom that Jesus is presenting. Right, even as this passage goes on in the explanation, even this random verse about divorce, right? Like a divorce at the time would have been a huge financial burden, especially on the women, right? There was, you could kind of just dismiss them and then they would be poor and a widow and the people were supposed to care about. Like let's, you can't do this. You can't just economically throw somebody under the bus the way that things have always been, right? As someone says, we are to, free from ser- we are f- we are to be free from service to wealth and a servile fear to God. I'll read that again. These stories are trying to get us to be free from service to wealth and a servile fear of God. Right? Money is a small thing. It's not the ultimate power of the universe. And God runs to pick up his kids after they've left him for who knows how many years. Right? We don't need an action plan 
to be presented at the door, right? Both of these stories, the prodigal son and uh, the unjust steward have a lot of similarities, right? They're kind of, they leave, um, they lose a lot of money. It's kind of character-driven. There's this monologue, and both of them kind of have a plan of how they're going to sort themselves out. I'm going to go back to my, my dad's house, and I'm going to just be a servant. Well, I'm going to just give away a bunch of money so that people will welcome me. And the master's reaction is not what they expect. The, he's run and he's met at the door. The, the master praises him for being shrewd. And these are reactions that are not supposed to happen, but this is how God treats us, right? God runs to the door when we need him. We don't need a plan or a, a kind of our own how do we save ourselves scheme. God will be right there. I've been in church my whole life, and sometimes that does sit up here, but it still doesn't get here. And stories like this can help with that. We need to keep reading these stories, right? They, they're, swimming, they're swimming upstream from our culture, right? These stories are still challenging in the way that they affect us and the way that they're sort of saying things are going to be. They show us how things really are. This story's conclusion is about being shrewd and smart with our means. The people of this world can share lavishly, so can you. And we as Christians have been let in on this great secret, right, about what's going to happen. This story about Lazarus and the poor man, in the end, the riches of this world will fade, right? God blesses those who are poor. We know this secret. We've been told about it. We read about it. We know who will be powerful and in charge in the end. Right? And I'm an evangelical Christian. I'll still claim that title. And I believe this is all God breathed. So I'd have to take that idea very seriously. I need to take it seriously that we've been let in on this secret of what actually matters. And of who will matter in the coming kingdom of God. And like this steward, I think we can all see our end, right? We know that a change is going to come that will affect us greatly. And who are we going to call into a meeting now to change the debts that we have maybe helped to set up? And that's what I want us to think about this week. Like this steward, we can see our end, and we know that a change is coming that will affect us greatly. Who are we going to call into a meeting to change the debts that we have helped to initiate, to help set up? I'd like to pray for us, and then we're going to head to discussion. Uh, God, thank you for this word of yours, uh, this word that we can trust, the word that is challenging, that we can develop a real relationship with. Uh, God, I pray that you'd be with us this week, that we would go about um, our weeks with, with ways of noticing this upside-down kingdom that you are trying to convey to us over the course of our lives. And I pray that we would be mindful of where you might call us into challenging situations and disorienting our reality for the sake of that kingdom. And be with us all uh, in, yeah, just the hardship that we're going through and the praise that we're going through and in uh, just living life here in KW. And we uh, thank you for this life. Amen.